going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. That's right. Thank you to Capital, the homie, for the opening. It is Wednesday. Hope you are happy wherever you are. This is a hump day Wednesday, so we're going to get through it together, and I'm just going to hang out with the homies. Speaking of which, the one off the top of the show is Cabby, Cabrell Richards. You know him well. Quite frankly, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Just be a stream consciousness as I catch up with him. The overwhelming feedback that I've gotten about this podcast is two things. Love some of the topics that aren't often talked about. Love show. He's really smart. Want to hear more from him. I agree. And the sessions with Cabby have been really, really funny. So I'm going to give you a little bit more Cabby. Also going to give you more of a really talented writer here at Sportsnet that if you're not following, if you're not reading, you need to. That's Sonny Sachdeva. He's got a great piece on Sportsnet.ca called We Were These Kids, about what the HDA is doing in their communities. HDA is the Hockey Diversity Alliance, for those who don't know. So stick around, bottom of the episode, we're going to get into all of the grassroots initiatives that have come from the HDA. But first, the guy who helped me get my start in this industry, Cabral Richards. Let's listen and learn and laugh with Cap. Ready? Yeah, uh, yes. Born ready. I was born ready on fish and spaghetti. And that was how we'll start uh, this edition of Cab and Donovan's Stream of Consciousness. Because we had a full podcast just now before we actually recorded the podcast. And I'm just going to pepper you with random uh, questions. Okay. So we're in the World Cup. Yes. Penalty kicks. People taking kicks from the spot, if you will. We spoke to actually uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast. Make sure to go through on demand, like, favorite, share, subscribe, tell a friend to tell a friend. That we talked to a, a doctor who who broke down the actual methods that you can deal with the pressure, the anxiety, the stress. Oh my gosh! Of a wow. big situation like a penalty, and we've seen that go really well for some nations and not so well for others. What would your penalty kick approach would be? Because I think penalties, it's not even sport; it's like interpersonal relations in terms of. It's what? A, it, what do you mean interpersonal relationship? You have no relationship with the goaltender. Oh, the yes, team. you do. Yes, you do. You have no relationship with this person. They're your adversary. First of all, you're the our hero definition of, your own... of relationship is different, but it is a game of chicken. It's a game of chicken. Yeah, but you don't know. Okay. Our, our, our definition of relation, relationship is different. Because this you, person is a stranger to you. Did you take social or did I take social? You took social. people. You okay, take social. I took radio so and you television. you may have no relationship with the person who is in the elevator with you. But there is still a delicate dance going on. Do you get off first? Do you get off second? Do you make conversation? Do you make eye yeah, contact? Yeah, that is just social etiquette. But this is game. There's gamesmanship. So maybe that's like you're thinking you're, you're categorizing it as a social relationship. And I'm saying it's gamesmanship. Yes, you are probably in each other looking at the person. Maybe you don't look the person directly in the eyes because you, there's fear in the moment. Or you're, you're, there's obviously a ton of pressure from your entire country on your shoulders in this moment. 
And yes. so the, what the other person does implicates you and vice versa. There is a relationship happening there. So is the, I suppose is on, the, is on the goal just level, dancing around and no, making himself big for the to protect this house. No, but he's trying to place a seed of doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With his histrionics and his animation, and yes, yes. and also getting himself or herself riled up in the moment just to just to perform in a matter of seconds. I don't diving think, left I or don't right. Think it has anything to do with their performance because they're they're guessing, they're diving, they're hoping. Yeah, I think it's more about the gamesmanship. Yes. Or interpersonal relationship. Oh my goodness! Between the two, anyways, we're already off track. Okay, I'm stutter, stutter, step, kick right down the pipe. <laughs> really? Yeah, right That's down the pipe. That's your approach. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, who's who's the um the Polish um, oh my gosh, who Lewandowski? Yes. He does that kind of stutter, right? He like hops, or maybe am I thinking of the right player? Anyway, we a stutter, a little bit of a hop, and then right down the pipe. Because the, the goaltender, other than um. It was the Argentinian goaltender who once didn't even, didn't really move. He kind of stayed in the middle because he was always jumping to his left. So stutter and waiting for the goalie, I assume, to move and then going in the middle. No, I would stutter and like move my body in kind of an unpredictable way and then just fire the, the ball right down the pipe. See, that's interesting. And it shows that you, like the 90s clothing brand, have no fear. Because <laughs> wow. The, the, wow. the shame of... A panenka, like just trying to chip it right in the middle, which when it when it goes off is so smooth, so classy. But like if the goalie just stands there and catches it and just looks at you, you'd feel so small right. in that moment. It, you'd also feel small if you miss the net, if the ball sails over the net, crossbar goes. You, you're gonna but feel that, small if you if you miss if you be, don't score anyway. But that would be your technique failing you and not your bravado failing you. And I think there's a difference. And I think people can say. Well, I get it when your technique fails, but if you're Leon Lett just out here strutting down the sideline and Don <laughs> Beebe comes and That's chases the, you the down. Part. I like your uh, cross-referencing. You always go back to your Cowboys. Um, I don't know what the, I don't have the statistical data available to me, and maybe if I was a world-class soccer player, I would have it. As far as like which way goalies tend to dive in those moments, I'm like 70% of the time is this, or that specific goaltender who I'm facing didn't like to learn their tendencies. The way that we study, we would study pitchers as baseball players, or they would study us as um, if we were batters, like, oh, I know I can, my, my cutter on the outside corner can work, or my slider inside can work on this particular batter. I so, would assume they guess to the opposite side of the st- ball striker's foot. Yeah. So if you're kicking it with the inside of your foot, you're opening up your hips, and thus you want to sweep it across your body. So, you're right-footed. I guess the keeper's then diving to their right most of the time. I'd assume, but like most PK takers have one or two kicks in them. You, it so- sounds like have one, and it's just up the middle. Look at me. I'm never going to be on a soccer pitch kicking a soccer ball in a penalty kick situation. See, it's funny. I would, no matter how many times, I think I would just go with my one kick, and this is what I got, and. If I lose with that kick, I'll lose. But I know it's the one I practice the most. It's the one that I could sleep at night knowing I can execute. And I think the bravado for me comes in, well, if I execute this properly, you're not you're not touching it. We're talking about side netting. Like I, I need to put the ball in like three parking spaces, basically. And so I should, if I'm at that level, be able to place it and essentially pass it 
into the net. But we've seen guys in this tournament and girls in previous tournaments, when they get in that moment, almost like make it up on the fly, which I, I think the the back and forth between keeper and the head games to me is, is why it's fascinating. I, I mentioned, I talked to a doctor about nerves. Do you get nervous before a big interview? Yes. How so? It just, it's like a fluttering in my, in my lung, in my lungs. They just, it happened recently where I, I interviewed Justin Jefferson and Dalvin cook together. And I, these are two huge stars in the NBA, uh, excuse me, NFL. And I was just like going through my questions. Cause it, I like it to appear off the off off the cuff and freestyle, but I do prepare for those moments. And the I, I said this to Aaron Rodgers last year. It was the most nervous, and this is probably like our tenth interview, but that tenth one was the most nervous I've been since the first time I interviewed him because I snuck in some drones and I didn't tell Tom Fanning the. Go, uh, the Green Bay Packers PR guy, what I was up to. He just assumed it would just be like a casual conversation that we normally have, like with some props, because I always bring props. But I brought drones. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this, I don't know how these guys are going to react. I don't know how Aaron's going to react. I don't know how Tom Fanning's going to react. These guys could throw me out of this hallowed ground of the Green Bay Packers facility. Lambeau Field is across the street. So I do still get, and even my appearances on Hockey Night in Canada, because it's it's live and there's no there are no teleprompters. You'd like... And I'm, you know, spewing stats and facts and uh, my perspective on the games for like two straight minutes. And I don't know. It's maybe it's I still get nervous. I don't have the same experience that you do with live broadcast because you've been you were broadcasting football games at like 24 or whatever it was every week on OUA University uh, Rush. University Rush. That's right. And you've you've been uh, calling. You know, you've been in a live capacity like. Hundreds of times more than I've I've been, so I still do get nervous. And even the next, um, even the next interview that I do, I might still have a little bit of that flutter in my chest. I don't get nervous, although I probably should, because nerves are just a sign that you care, that it means something to you. But I do get anxious. Okay, like I'm sure you can appreciate this. I just want to. It's like you're trying to secure the bag. Capture the flag. Just want to get there, get the interview done, get the footage. Were you rolling? Do we have good audio? Were there any okay, so issues? You're thinking about we... as a producer, not as like in the moment as the interviewer. But that's what I'm anxious about. Is there's you know that there are somewhat like a quarterback. It's on you. Everyone sees you, but there are all of these other variables yeah. that you only have so much control over. Are we on time? Are we ready? And what kills me, and you try to be calm, is when you finally get the interview subject, and then there's some sort of like technical difficulty. Hey, guys, can you just give me a second? I'm yeah, not, sorry. that's there's tough. another frequency here. Sorry, can I? Sorry, can you just turn around, Mr. Aaron Rodgers? I just need to check your pack. You check your you battery. Know, and then, yeah, the mic pack. batteries. In yeah, here. and yeah. I'm just like, it, it's probably 45 seconds to me. It feels like 45 minutes. Yeah, it does. Because yeah. you're just dying, and so I'm anxious about all of those. I had, I had items. I had one of those. That that it, it it totally threw me off my game. I was interviewing Connor McDavid, and then the PR guy was like, "And we're in the dressing room. We're like, all right, we're waiting for the kid." He's like, "So what are you gonna ask? Talk about?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, some hockey stuff." But he like wanted. He was trying to like dig to find out like what specifically I had I had planned, and I don't like to tell them because I want his reactions and I want everybody's reaction to be authentic in the moment. And then he was, and he actually mentioned, and this guy no longer works for the team, and I, he was an adversary of mine. Uh, but he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in your kitchen, huh, Cabby? I'm like, how can you, 
How can you try to affect somebody on their job the moments before they're trying to do an interview and there's a limited amount of time? You know this. There's always either five minutes, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. You might get 15 with Masai because you have a great relationship with them. Like it, it's you're always up again. You're racing against the clock because their their time is so valuable. And this mother bleeper is like, I'm in your kitchen, huh, Cabby? I'm like, how is this helping? The other time, I was interviewing David Beckham, and this is my first, only time I've ever seen David Beckham. And I, we ended up being the last interview of this. It was when they were um, announcing Inter Miami, or they, had, they didn't have a, a, a name for the club at the time. But Beckham is one of he's the famous limited partner of the of the of the team. Imagine they do get messy. Anyway, that's it'll be wild. And right before we're starting, bro, there's the PR guy from MLS in New York. He's like, and we were promised 10 minutes. He's like, all right, you got five minutes, okay, Cabby? Just as I was about to, three, two. I'm like, okay, man. So I'm like, three, two, take a deep breath. But wait, in that moment, you have a decision. Am I going to adhere to this and do five? Am I going to blow through the stop sign and do the 10 that I was granted? No, I. so I am editing my questions on the fly. I'm trying to be present in the moment, looking at Beckham, listening to his answers. But as I'm doing it, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to cut that question out. Okay. Where am I going after that? Okay. And then he's like, he finishes talking. I'm like, okay. And then go into my next thing. It was, I was so stressed, man. Cause Beckham's expectations is it's also five minutes, right. not 10 minutes. Yes. So that was, that was a tough one. It, it turned out all right, but it was, it was, he actually didn't know. And this is probably 17 or 18. He didn't know what Bitcoin was at the time. Like, you've never heard of Bitcoin? I mean, he knows now. I mean, he probably, he's probably one of those investors that got fleeced on FTX. But yeah, at the time, he didn't know what Bitcoin was. So I felt, I felt the sense of pride that like, I taught him something. Those have been the worst interviews I've done when you have to self-edit on the fly because you're not in the moment and you're not there. You're, for me, constantly on your notes app saying, had this in an order for a very specific yeah. way. Now I have to change this. And then when you watch it back, just super robotic, not engaging, not active listening. So I, I, I do feel, I literally feel that pain because I have uh, been there. So whoever the dude was that was in your kitchen, whoever cut your time by 50%, forget you. <laughs> Haters. And I also want to mention, though, just we've been talking for what ten or so minutes. Show that just casually, like without any stutter, without any hesitation, he dropped Aaron Rodgers, Connor McDavid, David Beckham as people that he interviewed. As if, as if that's nothing. It's it, a little look at me, Louis. I talked about University Rush in <laughs> 2011. Sidelines Western McMaster. He's like, yeah, yeah. you know, MVPs of their various sport. You also get to speak to a deity on the regular, regular, that? and that's Masai Ujiri. Then that, that oh. is Lord Ujiri. Right? Yes. The, the, on the, the regular, bro. Not a businessman, but a businessman. Uh, <laughs> that is true. That that is that is my one. I suppose. Let's talk about some QB deities or or past tense. I don't know if you've interviewed him. You must have. Although knowing him, it would probably suck. Russell Wilson. Twice, yeah. Did it suck? No, he was. He is a professional, bro. Well, he's like, trying to be Derek Jeter. Uh, I feel like yeah, he's trying to mean, act like Derek Jeter. Like he's wearing a wristband that's like, "What would DJ do?" Anyways, t- tell me about the experience interviewing Russell Wilson, I and then after that, tell me. Do you if feel bad for Russell not- Wilson? 
Because he's he seems like he's in the Get Out movie all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel bad for Russell. This guy's getting all kinds of slander. Wait, and wait. oh, right now? Yeah, Regin, you. This is the path that you chose. You wanted but to still, leave Seattle. Bro, like, this guy. You kept on. saying Broncos country. Russell Wilson That's is rad. Broncos he's fine. That's rad. He's corny. That's fine. But the guy has been. Uh, a stellar human being for his entire career. And he's been the public face of now two franchises. Sure. And there's, there's no missteps. Like the guy's been amazing, an amazing ambassador, you know, uh, and just a leader in the community. And like, this guy is getting mercy, like mercilessly killed by former teammates. And I I know they, they say you are, you are the anti Russell Wilson. Find me a teammate of I his. I still have empathy for the guy. The guy, no, no, no. He, signed, he had this huge trade for him. Two first round Which picks, he asked two for. second round Which picks, he asked for. a fifth round and, pick. And don't forget about the huge contract that he signed. That's sure. now one of the worst contracts in the history no, of it's professional too early. sports. It's too early. No, it's not. It's the first year. If they could set the contract on five, that, your point is correct. It's the first year. It's already bad. He's also they, got a first. He's got a first year head coach, Nathaniel Hackett, who's made a ton of mistakes as well. Correct. But if you are a franchise quarterback that's making top five money in the league, you were supposed to overcompensate for said bad coach. How? I don't know. By by has anybody overcompensated for a bad coach before? I don't know. How about I don't know? Maybe not being considerably worse than Geno Smith. The guy Fine. who's replacing okay, yeah, yeah. you. Like, okay. we have common denominators here. Okay, yeah. And Boston and, and Denver, who had terrible QBs forever, are now worse with Russell Wilson. Seattle, who had Russell Wilson forever, is now better without him. So, like, this I, is I've only got a, year I've got one. New ownership group. Yeah. Some Walmart money in there. Yeah. If the contracts were not guaranteed, do you think they would want to stick around for year two, three, four, and five? Listen, they're, they're a massive top they're a top i don't know fortune probably 50 company so they they understand the long game okay walmart's in it for the long game uh, these guys just bought the no, team they, for 4.6 no, billion they, they, they can wait they understand on winning on every transaction oh wait, sure sorry, long game fine we're gonna build around russell through the draft nope no we're not because we traded all our draft picks for russell wilson that's fine, fine. they're we're undra- build undrafted through free Austin Eckler was an undrafted running back and he's amazing we're going to build through free agency around Russell. Nope, because we gave Russell a boatload of money. They're in trouble. So clearly you don't think it's the worst trade ever. No, I, I just feel so bad for the guy. Like he's, Why? What? Why? Because, listen, he, I know he, is, he wants to project a certain image. And, yes, he's probably boring from Derek Jeter, probably boring from Michael Jordan. They, didn't, they never said anything particularly interesting. But Russell's led us into his life more so than Jeter has and more so than MJ has and more so than Tom Brady has. He's led us into his life? Yeah, you know, he's got, yeah, it's some videos like Mr. Unlimited and like he would go to, when he was in Seattle, he'd make a point of like going to visit the the children's hospital every week. Yeah, I mean, that's that's his time, giving his time. Do you feel like you know Russell Wilson? No. So he hasn't led us into his life. Well, do you know Tom Brady? Do you know Derek Jeter? Do you know Michael Jordan? I think I know... Tom Brady a little bit now. I think he, yeah, I know, because of Tom Brady, I, I because he, of the stuff around Tom Brady that he's that he himself has not said. It's been speculation on page six and the friggin' New York Post and Tom gave us Tom versus Time. He he and the Facebook series with Facebook uh, with um, deep, not Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra's no, that's um, Tom got, versus got, Time. Then uh, oh, okay. Man in the Arena was Man one after the that. 
two docuseries. I've, I've yeah, seen, but did you learn seen anything him. about Tom Brady? Yeah, I learned that he kisses his child on the lips. Yeah, that's I learned lots yeah. about him. For I learned, ten seconds. I learned that he <laughs> loves football more than spending time with his family. Like, I, I do think I have an appraisal on what the guy's like. He's shown some personality. His IG but that's game in, like, is, has improved. Yeah, that's post. That's in, but this is in year 19, bro. This is it, well no, no, after it's, the. It's post-Patriot way. Now we've learned about, about Tom. I don't think I know anything about Russell. This is what I know. I know that he's got $245 million coming to him, yeah. and he's going home to Ciara. Yeah, that's I'm amazing. Not, I'm not feeling bad for this I guy. I feel bad for the whatsoever. guy. But, he, but you know he cares. Like, obviously, he loves his wife. Obviously, he loves his family. But he loves football is what has defined him. And he is not playing at the level that he's played with at his who's, entire career. The guy's got like, what, know, 8, 10, 12 touchdowns. Who's fault, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Part, partially his. He's got some nice Partially. He's got a decent tight end, two good receivers. Like, great defense. A defense De- with. Defense, okay. Are you are you are you are you blind? Yo, the Chiefs just hung twenty seven on them before those guys even had a point on the board. Bro. The Chiefs hung thirty seven on everybody. And and listen, you know what? what they, you know, defense is you good. Know, you know they twenty seven points in like the second quarter. Cab, if the Broncos' offense just averaged eighteen points a game, just averaged it. Okay, yeah, they would have lost two games this year. That's how good the defense has been. Just give me 18 <laughs> points, and he can't do that. I think it's around 14 points a game, too. You're right. Okay, yeah. Well, listen, he had his first three-touchdown game on Sunday against the against the Chiefs, and that was it's that was regular. That was a regular Sunday for Russell when he was with the Seattle this Seahawks. This is why you should not feel bad for Russell. No, listen, I, and, listen and, he's getting and crushed and by everybody. Anti, correct. He has no zero, zero teammates. Who will cape up for him and be like, "Yeah, I like, dude." All of his former teammates are crushing him. You. Are that's the, why I feel you, bad. You, I empathize no, no, no. for him as a no, human. No, no, no. That's why you're the opposite from him because everyone that you work with likes you. No, with, that's with, not true. With, Every, with, you have people have strong opinions, no, and that's and in, obviously his his former teammates do. They have strong opinions about me, but they have uh, stronger opinions about Russell West, no, no, no. Uh, Wilson. The, the, the circle is so small; it's a period. People who. Have been your line. camera operators. It's a rap lyric. I stole it. Uh, <laughs> editors, producers, all will say, yeah, no matter if it was police report, TSN, the score, sports that will cape for him. No one's caping for this guy. Dude, people have to go through an intermediary to talk to him and we're teammates. I, you're not reading, that. but I, There's but not I, a zero chance I suppose I can, I also feel, I empathize with him. I know this will be my last thing because he feels like he, in projecting a certain image that he can't be whatever his real, the real version of like the Saturday morning on the couch. I don't want to do anything today. Russell Wilson is like that version of just at home in the comfort of his, of his domain and his shoulders are slouched. And Looking just... in the mirror, practicing his Broncos. Let's ride. Cause that's probably <laughs> what he's doing. Dude. The, and this will be my last Russell Wilson thing. He lost me when he was injured rehabbing and it was a Monday night game and he was out on the field. Couldn't throw because he, he, he it was his hand. He, yes. His thumb or Mallet yeah. syndrome, I believe is the injury. He was running around pretending to throw like going through the motions, like play acting what a two minute drill would be like just for the cameras to film. I'm like this, this guy. Okay. That's, yeah, he, that's, he needs, you should, you should be crushed for that. He needs help. He needs, <laughs> and, and, and that not to mention the fact that he then proactively this year, did he learn from the internet coming from for that? No, he then told the media, 
on a flight to the UK that he was working out. Oh, in that's the right. Aisle. Yeah, doing high knees or something like yes. that on the plane so for like had, four hours of yes. eight hours. You had other players in the league making fun of him, kickers making fun of him, who guys who are not even really part of the team making fun of Russell Wilson. He, the problem is he needs an intervention. But he has no friends with which to give him the intervention. It, what, that should be his older brother. His older brother should do that. Well, he's essentially a White Lotus character. Like, I, I could oh, see interesting. him, you know, on the on the villa. <laughs> right? Well, the, he would be the super rich. He, he, he'd be the, the character. He'd be the super rich. Very, hmm. The, he'd be the rich. He'd be the inauthentic. I guess he'd be like Cameron, but Cameron in this season is a real jerk. And Russell Westbrook, Wilson, I keep saying Westbrook, is not a jerk, but he's just rich, and he's just like, he's in his own universe and probably thinks that the universe will bend to his will because he's rich or because he's famous or achieved a certain level of status. But I think the beauty behind that show, shout out to Mike White, former Survivor contestant. Wow. Yes. Wow. Uh, I think the beauty of that show is that they're trying to show you that everyone thinks that they are intrinsically good but everyone, given the right circumstances, has a bit of jerk in them. Like, you're willing to do some stuff, maybe. I don't know if that part is true. Like, who? and everybody thinks they're intrinsically good. Cameron doesn't think he's intrinsically good. I think he does. I think, I think, I think he thinks Man, he, he does. Remember, the line, he's like, oh, that's just an assistant. Like, he's just, he's just a dismissive jerk. No, and, no, then, no. and then yes. the dad, Michael we Imperial. think that. But I think he, in his own mind, thinks... Yeah, this is my guy from university. I'm going to set him up and make him some money with some companies. Yeah, I, you know, serial cheat on my wife, but she's got a great life. But you can't think you're good if those are, that's what you're doing. You can tell yourself whatever you want. I think Cameron thinks in his mind that he's a good person. I guess if he's, if he's running businesses or what he's creating opportunities for other people. Yes, that's, he could tell himself. But okay, Michael Imperioli, like the dad, father of Albie, son to, I can't remember the, the grand F. Murray Abrams. Um, character's name, but do you think he thinks he's good? We know for a fact he does. He tried to tell Albie, his son, that he, he, I married a, a, your mom, who's a strong, independent woman. I'm, I'm not a sexist. In fact, I'm a feminist. Yes, he thinks he's good. And yes, he, he gave 50 euros. 50,000 50, euros. 50,000 euros to his son's, you know, summer fling. <laughs> <laughs> Which or pay his paid summer fling? Yes, it, 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 I mean the hopes that he'd put in a good word with his mom because he wants to reconcile that badly. He starts with having you know his weak entertainment lined up before <laughs> he got there, and then he leaves by thinking he's gonna give them key cards and access, but not you know dabble in the buffet spread. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. he thinks that he's reforming. Yeah, they all think they're good. Uh, now I'm trying to think about back to season one. Um, I remember the family with the daughter, the friend, the son, um, uh, Ethan, uh, Ethan Zahn. No, not Ethan Zahn. Steve Zahn's character as the patriarch and his wife, the successful executive. I'm trying to think of the other. And then there was the, there was the couple, um, the rich couple. And he was, he was a jerk. He was like season one, Cameron. And I, um, hmm, that's interesting. Does everybody think every character think they're good? I, I believe, um, Jennifer Coolidge's character does, even though she runs through assistance and she is just in her own in her own world and and totally vulnerable to predators and grifters. But huh, that's an interesting point. I, I I'm I was all in on the show and I watch it with my wife. It's like HBO to me is still like the 
it is still the top of the mountain is still like the premium content provider or, or platform in entertainment. And even from like, I was thinking about it earlier, like I enjoy, I still like the element of surprise of not having access to the show right away. So give me like my Sunday nights and maybe it's because HBO has, has continued to elongate this behavior, my, my television watching behavior, because it doesn't really give you other than actually HBO Max will give you a full series. Um, I watched uh, who wrote Insecure? Issa Rae. Issa Rae. Issa Rae's show about the two girls in Miami who are like aspiring hip hop artists. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, that was on HBO Max. I, they give me all the episodes at once, but um, like from time, like Entourage, Eastbound and Down. Obviously, like Game of Thrones. Like I need that on my John Oliver's show. I need that on my Sunday nights. So I'm I'm uh, I still like getting weekly shows versus just binging everything. I mean I do like to binge. I mean, everybody binges, but that's where I. What did you think of White Lotus? I believe rap s word. I don't know. If yes, rap. Can... Okay, there you go. So I'm torn. I don't know if I like. I mean, I do love White Lotus and HBO. The ending was whack. I won't ruin it for people, but I, I needed more. Although maybe <laughs> that will be solved in season three, which has already been greenlit. I I. I do know if I like the communal experience of everyone you know, tweeting and the lead up. What do you so think? So, wait, do you happen? think this is a monoculture show? Like everybody's talking about this? Oh, 100%. Really? Oh, yeah. Because Succession was that. No doubt. And obviously, Game of Thrones was that. But there's so few shows that actually, that like the whole culture is talking. Wow, you think White Low? Okay, wow, that's interesting. I think, I think Insecure, as you mentioned, was one. Yeah. I do. I think. I think. Atlanta to start was one. I, by the end, I don't think it was. I think actually people start to hate watch Atlanta by the end. <laughs> Do you think Ozarks was? Well, that's the thing. Yes, but I think that snowball struggles to build when it's all there for you, which is why in the last season they did like Two half parts? the season drops Yeah, because people are in different seasons at different times, and so it's tough to get that community we're seeing it now a little bit with on Netflix with the Will and Kate documentary because anything the Royals people will come for for whatever reason. My wife and they, is and they're watching almost that. like anti the Royals, which is another so segment people are, of the population. Are like, hate watching the Royals? Why? I think isn't that the Crown? Isn't that the the oh yeah the love of people watching the Crown is just to, for people to understand how messed up this family actually is. <laughs> but I, I think people who dislike the Royals who want to cape for that aspect might then get into the Will and Kate series, but it, I'm not Wait, sure you mean, what I no, prefer. Her, Megan and Harry series. Sorry, yes. Megan and Harry series, yes. I don't know what I prefer because the almost sweet spot was The Last Dance where it was on a streamer. Oh my gosh. It was on man, Netflix. I love that narcotic, It bro. was in the height of the pandemic. Yeah. So we were all at home, but you got one by Wait, one. Wait, didn't you have one. like eight you had eight, right? And you watched them before they, they dropped? I did, yeah. I did not. I think someone passed me the link. I was like, no, I need this on my Sunday nights. I need two hours. Every, I need to look forward to this narcotic that I'm going to jam in my eyeballs and in my friggin' veins and my, my arm because this is, this is just going to be like the theater and the, the hegemony that I need because we're stuck at home. But it's also like we're watching the great, the undisputed greatest athlete of all time and 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 the standard of excellence in championships ever and that was obviously michael jeffrey jordan spell hegemony 
H E G E M O N Y? I have no idea. I don't know. I just, it's. Show, is that close? Show says you are correct. All right. It's funny because we've seen so many great sports docs come. I think because of the wave of The Last Dance, I don't know if anything has come close to it. I do like the Shaq doc, speaking of H. Do you? I do. I love it. I haven't watched it yet. I love it. Because he, he works for Turner. And Turner is in the same family as HBO. Unauthorized versions are going to be way better. The, now, the Tiger Woods one, that was amazing. It, that was amazing. That was amazing. That, 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 that's probably that's the closest to, to the, the last, last dance, dance we've seen. Give the Shaq doc a chance. He's got so many different facets to him. I actually love it for the level of production. Okay. And we were actually catch up to uh, Robert Alexander, the director, uh, coming up on this very podcast. So stay Sick. tuned for that. Lastly... The thing that you always stay tuned for, the thing that maybe, maybe it will be its own docuseries in the future. <laughs> Dadger. All rise. Dad Jerry is in session. So this one, I, it's, it's like an open and shut case. I'm not even, I'm not even asking for your approval because quite frankly, I don't even care how you weigh in and I know how you weigh in, but it is something maybe I'll just work through with you. It's more like, Dad shrink right now. I'm at a uh, Christmas gathering as we get close to the holiday season with friends. But it's, you know, lots of kids. Kids running everywhere. So there's a kid's table. There's an adult table. And spread is being passed. And so there's, like, you know, some sandwiches, if you will, for the adults. Some fancy sparkling waters. Nice. And then, yeah, sure. And then on on the kid's table, they've got pizza. They've got Costco nuggets, like the nuggets where every single nugget is the exact same size and the exact same beautiful taste, some barbecue sauce, and some juice boxes. And I looked at the two spreads, and I said to myself, I know what I'm supposed to eat, but I know what I want to eat. (laughs) And so, best believe your boy had some nuggets. (laughs) I took one sandwich just to be like somewhat, you know, socially involved with the adults. But I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of nuggets here. They're going to go away. Give me some of those. I'll have some of those nuggets. And uh, it, it, there's so many nuggets. Did you feel like you were being judged because you're in the nuggets? No, I was, oh. I was, I was among friends. I was, oh, okay. I was with uh, you know, the five guys, my friends from high school. You've met. We've, you've, you've came on my bachelor trip with them. Shout out to James and Giancarlo and Nick and, and Pete. But I, I, am, I am looking ahead to future scenarios where it's the young kid, birthday parties, right? And when I get through that death trap of life where every weekend I'm driving my kid to someone else's kid's birthday party, not the ones where you just, like, leave and come back. Like, you have to stay and chaperone your kid. Those oh, ones. those ones. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I've, I've heard bad things. I'm not there yet, but I'm not looking forward to it either. I'm going to be the dad on the in the corner watching, you know, Red Zone. On you will absolutely be on your phone the whole time. Yeah, just super antisocial. But will I be able to get away with sampling from the kids' table at, at that? Because yeah. now it's not even just about me. It's like I'm representing my child. I'm representing <laughs> my wife. I'm representing my household. <laughs> do you have to do the move where you have to eat with Desi? So, like, Ooh, have him on your lap, like and then you can, just like, sampling off sampling, his plate? Yeah. Yeah, Des, maybe, you're not going to finish this. We don't waste food, Des. We don't waste <laughs> food, and then just obviously pack the pack the plate or have t- like a, an adult sized bowl of nuggets so that he can have one, and then you can have six, and he can have one, and then you can have five, et cetera, et cetera. There I think can, that might be the move. Okay, I like that. Thank you. This has been very helpful. There, I I do have some self respect and restraint <laughs> because you know there were so many leftover nuggets that some of the kids took little Ziploc bags to go with nuggets. I was like, I can't go that far. I can't be the one with like. 
you know, my grandmother getting out the Tupperware at somebody else's <laughs> house and just taking food. So I do have some big facts. Uh, thank shout out you. to Lucille. Yeah, shout out to Lucille. Uh, thank you for uh, your counsel uh, on all things nuggets and, and binging. My pleasure, brother. This has been a lot of fun, as always. Thanks once again to Cab. Some of the stuff that we talked about off mic was actually funnier and more interesting. We should have been rolling earlier. That's how it is with him all of the time. You should be following his work as he is president and global ambassador of all things betting here at Sportsnet. At SNBets is the handle on Instagram, on Twitter. They're building a community. So come along for the ride. Be in the fun party house when it comes to betting. After this break, we keep the party going with Sonny. Stay tuned. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Go and Deal with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma, Granddad. And actually, it's funny that you're my granddad because I don't know a more diehard Leafs fan, hockey fan, just for all the Canadian teams, actually, than him. But despite that, and despite watching Saturday nights with him growing up as a kid, I never saw myself on the ice playing the game, and I never did play on the ice. The Hockey Diversity Alliance is looking to change that, and Sonny Sachdeva has done a great job documenting what they're doing. Now, you should read the full long-form article. It'll be in the show notes to this podcast. But I want you to hear the background on how he thought of it being a worthwhile story and what the HDA is doing that they need some help on. We Were These Kids is the story. Let's listen and learn how it came to be with Sonny. So, Sonny, you have told so many fascinating stories about hockey, full stop, but about the diversity or lack thereof in the game. Why this story right now for you? Yeah, you know, a few different things. I, I think, uh, obviously, with everything that's going on in the sport right now, uh, you know, there's a there's a big question of what are the steps kind of being taken to, to fix things and, and to build something better for the next generation to, to obviously move the sport and the direction I think it pretty obviously needs to go. And I think with, with kind of this project in particular, you know, talking with the HDA and with Akeem, uh, I think kind of people don't necessarily know about a, a lot of the things they're doing behind the scenes and the impact they're having. And I just thought it was time to to kind of ask them where they're at and ask them about this program and kind of get everybody up to speed on, on what they've been doing. So I was one of those kids that as a kid played all types of sports, including street hockey and roller hockey on the street with my friends and loved it and loved watching the sport, but never ever fathomed I would play ice hockey. Didn't see myself in the sport, really didn't see my parents as ice hockey parents, and I'm sure they didn't see themselves as ice hockey parents. Did you have a at all a inkling that many others, you know, had a similar experience and, and wanted to bring that storyline throughout the story? Yeah, you know, it's interesting too for me. I grew up in Calgary, so it's kind of a little bit of a different hockey culture than where I am now in, in Ontario. And then out there, I mean, there's outdoor rinks everywhere, right? So, so in the summer, everybody's out playing street hockey, ball hockey, and in the winter, they freeze over and everybody's playing ice hockey. And it's 
it's just kind of a very easy accessible thing and that's obviously not the case for for different communities you know throughout the country especially the inner city where you can't have just rinks outside for everybody to use uh you know Aaron Atwell who's one of the key guys running this program for the HDA he talks about that exact thing that you know the community he grew up in everybody was playing street hockey and everybody was outside you know if you heard sticks people would be looking out the window and it was like a, a thing that brought all the kids in the community together. And then when he would go to ice hockey, because he got the chance to play ice hockey, he just wouldn't see any of those kids, right? It, it, ball hockey is such an amazing entry point to the sport, but at the same time, it, it's a lot easier to play, right? It doesn't cost thousands of dollars to to buy equipment and, and to, to rent ice time and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I think that is a common thing throughout the country that, you know, when I would go to the rink and play, I'd see, you know, 15, 20 kids from 15, 20 different backgrounds, right? It was a, a super, super diverse group. But the the transition from that to ice hockey is just not a, a clean transition. And you see so many of those kids just don't get the chance to, to make that transition. And then we see, obviously, a much smaller group that do get to play ice hockey. And then obviously that kind of moves up and, and uh, affects who gets to be in juniors and in the NHL and, and so on. So for those who haven't read the story, just give us a baseline on tangibly, what is the HDA doing to help eradicate some of those problems and provide solutions? Yeah. You know, when I, when I spoke to Akeem and, and to Aaron, they talked about both experiencing that when they were younger and, and kind of from the time they were younger, trying to figure out a way to, to move past that and to change things for, for the kids in the communities that they grew up in and basically had this idea to, you know, go into the communities that needed it most in the GTA at first and essentially just offer kids hockey for free, right? To just give kids the chance to to fall in love with the game and, and kind of do those things that need to happen at the very beginning before you become, you know, a lead and competitive in the sport. So uh, essentially they've gone into four communities to start off with. They, they worked with the city of, T- of Toronto to identify the 12 kind of priority, most underserved neighborhoods in the city. They're starting with four of them and then expanding to another four next year and another four the year after that. And essentially they just offer, you know, head to toe free hockey. So, you know, free equipment, free ice time, free meals and transportation. Uh, Akeem said they've had about 500 kids sign up so far and, and, you know, him and Aaron are, on the ice running the sessions and you know the beginning has been a lot about just teaching kids how to be in skates and how to kind of move around and just how to how to get to a place where they can just kind of have that freedom to explore and and, you know see if they like the game and and just kind of go on with it so yeah that's the program so far Uh, they've called it the the grassroots original hockey league so the gohl and it, it seems like, you know, a, a program that's kind of coming from a place of of empathy and, and, and understanding of, you know, how hockey kind of realistically fit into the day-to-day for, for kids in these communities who, you know, don't necessarily have uh, parents who can drive them all over town and take time off work and afford to pay, you know, thousands and thousands a year. And I think obviously being able to grow the game and, and to move it into other communities, you kind of need programs like this that, that, you know, sidestep some of those barriers. So it, it does seem to be a great kind of first start. And I do find it somewhat 
fascinating the communities that they're starting with in the greater Toronto area. Regent Park, Jane Finch, Albion, Malvern, where I lived and grew up when I was the same age as these kids. And you often hear about these pockets of Toronto in the news when it's often bad news. And that's how some of these areas are painted, talking about crime and not necessarily talking about community. So I love the fact that we get a bit of a community aspect and civic pride in these neighborhoods. But I also find it fascinating that they're doing these camps in these neighborhoods and not taking the kids to Scotiabank Arena or, you know, a nice, glitzy, beautiful multiplex with great ice and great pads. Why was that the choice that they made? Yeah, you know, that was one of the most interesting things to me because I think it comes back to to just that empathy and understanding, right? And and it might maybe seem counterintuitive to some people who, who might from afar think, you know, why not give the kids a chance to to go to this amazing rink downtown and that kind of thing. But again, you know, it, it's about understanding what kind of the day-to-day actually looks like in those communities. And, you know, Aaron and Akeem both talked about that, that, you know, they understand what the parents in those communities are going through because it's the same thing that their parents went through, you know, where they're, they're working jobs where they can't take time off to drive an hour to take their kids to, to a practice. And, you know, you have to, to do it in a way that's going to actually allow the people you want to reach to be able to reach you. Right. So, so yeah, they've dropped this program kind of into the heart of these communities where, where kids can walk to the rink and, you know, parents of kids who are in the same class as other kids can, you know, drive a bunch of kids to the rink and, and they can all kind of work together. And it's just a way of kind of making it more accessible. And, and I think that to me was kind of an interesting, unique thing about this program is that it, it's kind of taking things into account that maybe others don't because it's run by people who, who have been there, right. And who, who have seen their own families kind of deal with some of these struggles. And, you know, Akeem says in the piece, we got lucky, right. Him and the other guys in the HDA, they got the support they needed at certain points along the way. And they, they, you know, found a way to kind of get over those hurdles, but uh, there are so many kids they grew up with and so many kids I grew up with. And I'm sure you grew up with that just like didn't have that opportunity. And so, it just becomes, you know, why would you play a sport that is going to cost thousands of dollars? And is that a rink you have like no way to get to when there's this other sport you could go outside and play outside your house, right? So, uh, yeah, it's definitely coming from a place of understanding how to build that bridge and understanding how to get kids into a sport in a way that actually makes sense for, for where they live. Well, I think the secret sauce behind what they're doing is this program is as much, if not more, for the parents as it is for the young players. When we look for solutions in terms of who's playing the game, so often we start with the root of the problem in getting kids in the game, not understanding that kids at that age, they're often not the ones deciding what they're doing with their disposable time. Kids are willing to try anything often. It's the parents who maybe might have a barrier of entry, not just off of cost, but off of assimilating the cultural norms. I love the fact that the HDA members, their parents, have been a part of this program. What did you learn about how they've been able to contribute to what uh, the young guys running the HDA are doing? Yeah, you know, I, that was kind of a, a really beautiful part of this is, 
is again, you know, part of it is, is kind of the technical teaching kids how to look at it. And I think a bigger part of it is just kind of sharing their story. And, and that really ties into the parents too, and having their parents there to share their stories of, you know, they talked about kind of, you know, I talked to Joel Ward for this piece and, and he was saying, you know, his parents who both came from Barbados and moved to Canada, they had like no idea going into a rink where to go or, or what, you know, teams to sign up for, what camps to sign up for. And, and you know, having somebody there who you can relate to and, and who's kind of gone through those similar things and can explain it is such a key thing because, you know, at that level too, a lot, you know, elsewhere in the country, I, hockey sometimes isn't the most inviting place, right? And I don't think everywhere in every rink in Canada, it's not necessarily, you know, everybody's jumping up to, to explain things to everyone. There's kind of a certain sense of you're supposed to know how this works and where to go and what to do. And that can be a, a really daunting thing if you're just getting into the sport, right? And and there, there's a lot of different sides to it. I mean, you know, Joel said too, families that aren't familiar with the sport that are watching from afar and seeing all these kind of controversies and all these scandals and all these kind of scary things aren't necessarily, you know, jumping up to take their kid to a rink to, to put them in that sport. So to to have people there that are from your community that, that you know and whose parents have, have kind of made that decision before and, and seen it be all right, that that's such an essential thing to just to, to make the sport a more inviting place. And at the beginning, at that point, where you're dealing with kids, it's just getting them to fall in love with the game. That's really all it's about, right? It's just making the sport inviting and welcoming and then not a scary place to be. So based off of your reporting and talking to them, what are the next steps? What are the metrics they're looking to measure? And you know, what's the short-term and long-term end game of what they're doing? Yeah, I think I think short term, it, it seems to be a, a very kind of simple thing, which is all it needs to be, I think, which is, you know, just getting kids to to learn how to skate, to, to learn how to play the game. And, you know, that's kind of one difficult thing with hockey, unlike, you know, soccer, basketball or football, where you can just pick up the ball and play and then you kind of learn the, the detailed skills. Hockey, there's such a ice hockey, at least there's such a baseline of skill you have to gain before you can kind of do any of that right before you can even enjoy playing the sport and being on the ice so I think short-term step one is just getting kids to that baseline where they can play and then after that you know if they want to play they can play if not at least they have the choice long-term and kind of bigger picture you know they're in four communities this year they said they want to expand into 12 over the next two years uh, and, you know, Akeem's talked about they've already had, you know, NHL teams reaching out, even an NBA team reaching out in the States about bringing this program to, to other cities and other communities. And, you know, I think uh, another thing that comes from this being run by by people who've had to kind of really fight for their dream to be in the sport and really fight for their place in the sport is the fact that, you know, they're they're dreaming really big with it and they're aiming really big with it and they're kind of willing to to go through the battles they have to go through to, to make that happen. So, I mean, we'll see where it all goes. I think it's a, a fantastic start. They're about a, a month, month and a half into the program and they have 500 kids uh, in there right now. I think they're going to aim for, you know, a thousand next year and we'll see where it all goes. But it, it seems like, you know, it could be a, a great thing for, for Canadian hockey 
just having more communities in the game and you know more types of communities in the game and just more kids able to to play and, and see if they love it and see if they want to move on in it i know that you have 500 stories on the go at any given time and before i let you go let us know what should we be looking for from you coming up that you're excited about yeah, I know you and I have talked about um, a story I'm writing on, on Nazim Kadri, And, and uh, again, like I said, being from Calgary, uh, I think there's kind of an interesting perception of Calgary from people that aren't from there, that it's, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is that people think. But I think it's it's a much more diverse city and interesting city than, than people think. I think the hockey community there is so much more diverse than people think. I think of you know, the kids I saw at the rink when I was growing up. And I think, you know, Nas going there has had such a bigger impact than people know on all those Flames fans around the city who've been kind of maybe pushed to the background or, or just, you know, who maybe don't get their due from the rest of the hockey world and don't you know, understand how many kind of BIPOC fans they have out there. So we're putting together a story on just the impact he's had there. And I think it'll be able to shine an interesting light on just another side of, of that city and its hockey community. Well, add me to the top of the queue of people who you talk to when it comes out, because I always love to read you, and I appreciate you when you're willing to expand on those words. Cheers, man. I appreciate you having me on, and, and I'm just following your lead. Sunny is on Twitter, at S-H-D-E-V-A-S-O-N-N-Y. Sunny's a great friend, great follow, great writer. Show, after listening to that, conversation what stuck out to you well I, th- I definitely think it's just the the importance of having those kinds of spotlights shone on different kinds of communities and i, I appreciated hearing both you and sunny talk about your experiences in your own various communities i think those like just we don't in the world of hockey get those kinds of lights too often i think things are changing and that's great and I'm I'm excited to see where it is next year, and I'm excited to see where it is in five years, and I'm excited to see where it is in ten years. We're seeing the different levels in uh, Canada hockey. Uh, you saw the changes made to the board of the Hockey Canada directors and so on. But at the same time, I um you know you still need changes and a whole bunch of different levels. So it was just nice to see that. And Sonny also is just like the right person, I think, to be writing these kinds of pieces. He like you mentioned, he has written tons of these pieces in the past and I'm sure he's going to re- write a lot of them and going forward as well. So I, I really liked it. I think it's important and I'm glad we got to cover it. And uh, Hey, I'm also really excited to hear him talk about, you know, the piece on Nazem Kadri because I got to say Kadri has long been my personal favorite hockey player. And I, I freely admit the reason for that is just like, there are just not very many Brown hockey players that it's just period that he's like one of what, like three or something like that, maybe even less. So I, uh, I, I don't know. I think that's really cool. So I remember I got to speak to Kadri like right after he won the cup, he did like an interview for Sportsnet, I think for Kipper and Bourne. And uh, I was, I helped to record that. So I got to talk to Kadri when he came back to uh, London with the cup and so on. It was, it was kind of cool. I got to say, Hey, thanks for being like the first uh, Muslim player to lift the cup and bring it back to your hometown and so on. And I got to say, I kind of thought he would be uh, like, he would kind of be like, ah, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, what, what, who, who is this guy? But he actually like was like, Oh, Hey, that's really nice of you to say. He asked my name and so on. I don't know. I just, I generally, you know, in this industry, you get to talk to a lot of different, uh, athletes and different media members and of all walks of life. And I thought seeing 
coverage like this by Sonny and then also just the mention of him about, about Nazem Kadri, it was pretty cool. That's beautiful. I mean, think about it. You are a grown-ass man, and you get to talk to athletes all the time, and that representation really matters to you. So then we extrapolate that out. Imagine what it would mean to a young kid. Imagine the world of possibilities that would open up, how seen they would feel uh, if you know they had a little bit more representation in the game. So that's why I think these conversations are not token. They're very, very important. I think the representation of where hockey players come from is very important because we ascribe certain traits to places based off of the people that come out of them. The entire, you know, a good Kingston boy conversation always made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, not because there's anything wrong with people who come from Kingston, shout out to Adnan Verk, but many of those same traits could be given to someone like Wayne Simmons, but we never say good Scarborough boy. And so I think it's so important what the HGA is doing, going into those communities, finding you know, some rare hidden gems and also shining a spotlight on the many people who have been able to come through. And so in the same way, we say, man, look at all of the great, beautiful traits that people from the prairies have and how that has manifested itself into some great hockey players. I would love to say, man, look at the great traits that many people who, based off of many circumstances, grew up in the projects and all of those traits, that resilience, that toughness, things that are important in hockey, they have developed a bunch of great hockey players or just a bunch of people who loved the game and went on to do a bunch of great things that didn't happen to be drafted in the NHL. So important conversations, ones that we love having in this very space. And we love hearing your stories as well. So interact with us and Sonny on Twitter because all of these conversations at all levels in the sport are really, really important. Thank you for listening on behalf of myself show who keeps me on task and lance who runs the boards we'll talk to you next time i guess we had no concept of like how much time before we actually get into football action there was was, right no no, no, there is it's it's called a clock it's on the scoreboard it's on it's it's if you're playing at like certainly a pro level but even most universities there's a clock in the locker room everyone has to come out at a certain time so i had to go out early because it was like, uh, you know, practicing uh, catching punts. And then it was like, you know, whoever. And then, like, there's, it comes out in waves. And then you kind of go back in, and the team comes out again as whole, well, which is another, like, waste of energy. But you got to have that moment for the photogs when you're running through the W and <laughs> whatever. So it's like, yeah, so, all, there eight, so everyone knows because there's, like, a, there's a run of show to it. So you, you, you and you've, you've, it's not your first game. Like, you know that, like... I guess and, it's... And, and if you're not, like, there's going to be a coin toss, whatever, kickoff. If you're not actually starting the game, that's, like, another 10 minutes until you get to hit somebody. That's true. That's true. So, like, <clears throat> so what is the point of you screaming, Today! Today! <laughs> let's go! It's about the day! From the start! <laughs> These people out here are like, what is going on? <laughs> Black people. But you know that, Ray, like, listen, if Ray Lewis, I mean, there's only one. It just gets you charged. It puts a charge in your body, bro, and it gets your mind right. And obviously, we were parroting behavior that we saw yeah. in on you know the Big Ten Saturday games, Michigan and the Ohio State, or just football movies that we'd seen, the program or 
I guess for someone your age, uh, Friday Night Lights. No, uh, program, yeah. Starting defense. <laughs> you were oh, set, set the table. Man, you were like six when the program came out. Program came out in 93, 92, 93, okay. 94. Manson have TMN when he was six? <laughs> no, you did not. The Better Household did not have TMN. Uh, all right, and that's the podcast. Great. That was outstanding. Was the, add that to the paywall.